Okay, welcome to Congregation Emmanuel. We are the fifth largest reformed synagogue nationwide, and we're a leader in bringing various and diverse views on Israel to our community. My name is Jordan Heimowitz, and I am the chairman of the Israeli Action Committee, and I am honored that you can join us this evening. Please note that this event is exclusively sponsored by Emmanuel, and while we welcome other partnerships, there are no co-sponsors to this talk. Roughly 25% of the American population identifies as evangelical Christians. Evangelical Christians have become some of Israel's most prominent supporters. Christians United for Israel has 3.6 million members, 35 times more than APAC. So my question that motivated this talk is, why have evangelicals embraced Israel in such a strong manner? And what motivates these Christian Zionists? Before we begin the program this evening, I would like to talk about civility. This is the house of God. Our Jewish community has a wide range of views and perspectives on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We are bound together by Ahava Yisrael, a love of the people of Israel. We see God's unique face in each of us and in every person here. Respectful listening and speaking are essential. We call upon those here this evening to engage in mutual respect, even if you strongly disagree. Any attempt to interrupt, disturb, harass, or engage in any sort of uncivil behavior directed towards the speaker, other members of the audience, or the rabbi will remote, remote, result in the immediate removal by, yourself, by the security stationed all around this room. We are also videotaping this event and we'll turn over the tape to the police. Thank you for your cooperation. Finally, these talks are not cheap, especially when we need to beef up security. If these forums are important to you, please think about making a donation to our Israel Action Committee. See Ariana Stoke or Julie Weinberg up front. Or joining our temple if you're not a member. It's a wonderful synagogue. Our next talk is Natan Sharansky on November 6th. Rabbi, 16th. Rabbi. Jordan worked so hard with our Israel Action Committee to really bring diverse teachers and speakers to the community. We're devoted from learning from those we don't know, from engaging in dialogue, from agree to agreeing to disagree, and but maybe move forward. Uh, if you're a Christian here tonight, we welcome you. If you're a Muslim here tonight, we welcome you. If you're a Buddhist here tonight, you, we welcome you. If you're struggling with God and not sure, then we want you to join your Jewish, <laughs> and we welcome you as well. Uh, we say this, these words of, of hope, of peace, not just for Jews, not just for Muslims, not just in the Middle East, but in Korea, in Africa, all over the world, that we pray for peace. Oseh shalom b'mramav, hu yaseh shalom. Aleinu ve'al kol Yisrael, amen. May we not lose that hope for peace and engagement, seeing the holy in the other, and as we understand the other. Uh, to introduce our, our speaker who will speak to that, uh, that effect, it's my honor to invite David Blumberg to come forward.
Thank you very much. And thank Rabbi and thank Jordan for your incredible efforts and Ariana and the whole team of this temple. This event uh, really took a lot of organizing and there was a lot of controversy. And I want to first thank you. You showed up. That's the first job of a, in a democracy is to participate. And we hope to have a great civil conversation with a very interesting speaker who's a personal friend. Uh, my husband, Michelle, and I have known David for a long time. He's an amazing guy. Um, he has, like, his, you know, in Jewish tradition, we believe that the name of a person says a lot about them. And David, David, means beloved. And he's our beloved friend, and he's beloved by many people for the great works that he's done. His academic career is incredible. Princeton University, Harvard Law School, worked in high tech in Israel before moving back to the United States because he thought he could make a fortune in politics. Was it that? Or something like that. You left high tech in Israel, you could have been a zillionaire. And um, so he worked uh, first as counsel, then general, chief, uh, general counsel, then chief of staff for Senator Arlen Specter in Washington, D.C., a Republican senator from, um, he changed to you know, Republican, a Democrat later in his life um, in, in, in Pennsylvania. And then uh, David was curious because he saw a very interesting group of coalitions of people who had come that were supporting Israel. Sometimes they were Jews, like AIPAC, et cetera, and sometimes they were non-Jews, especially evangelicals were overrepresented. And David, growing up as a Jew from the Jersey Shore, wondered, why are these evangelicals supporting Israel? I'll let him tell why he fell into this uh, scholarship, but he did it on his own, and it was only after that that he then joined Kufi as their executive director. So it was first his encountering in the political sphere why people of the Christian faith would be so pro-Israel, and being skeptical, as many Jews are, about the evangelical movement, he went to research for himself, and I'll let him tell his own story. I just want to say that he is, like the biblical David, a fighter, uh, a fighter for justice, um, very beloved, and he's not afraid of Goliath. So the people out there can protest all they want. We're going to hear from David Bragg, our friend and an esteemed speaker, and if I may say so, Bragg, uh, when you Hebraicize it, becomes Barak, and Ehud Barak happens to be his second cousin. So being a fighter and a patriot to the Jewish people comes in his DNA. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, David, for the welcome, the intro, the invite. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Rabbi. Um, so, uh, you know, looks like uh, we generate a little controversy tonight. And, you know, I, I'm of a mixed feeling because when you go to synagogues these days and um, Jewish events, you don't often see a lot of young people. So I'm excited that we had some young people. I just wish more of them were inside and not outside. Um, and I wish they were here because there's so much to learn. And when I look at our politics today, to me what's wrong with our politics is that we're too quick to judge everybody. We, we hear one statement, one quote, often not accurate, often out of context, and we know all we need to know to pass judgment on everybody. Can't we all just calm down for a minute, talk and listen, and then pass judgment? <laughs> we, are, we are still Jews after all, many of us. Um, that has served me well in life, and I'd like to share one way in which it has served me well. 
Uh, as David mentioned, um, I worked for Senator Arlen Specter from Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is an interesting state. James Carville, the political pundit, uh, once described it very well. He said, Pennsylvania is strange. You have Philly in the east, Pittsburgh in the west, and Alabama in between. <laughs> and if you've ever been to central Pennsylvania, and I've spent uh, a lot of time in central Pennsylvania, uh, you see there's some truth to that. It is very rural for the Northeast, very conservative, and very Christian. And uh, on all of my treks to central Pennsylvania with Arlen Specter, I met a lot of Christians who would say things to me like, you're Jewish, I love the Jewish people. You know, you're Jewish, I pray for Israel. And they'd say it from the heart. They'd say it sometimes with tears in their eyes. And I'll tell you what my reaction was. I would hear this, and I'd think to myself, yeah, Davis, I'm from the Jersey Shore. I, I never knew real evangelicals. I never knew Christians. They'd say this from the bottom of their hearts, and I'd say to myself, baloney. Baloney. For 2,000 years, you people try to kill us. For 2,000 years, point of a sword, convert or die. And now you're telling me that you love me? No way, man. But you know, I got to know some of these people pretty well. And there were some wonderful people. And over time, I grew very ashamed of myself. You know, talking is something we should do more of. Shame is something we should experience more. I grew ashamed of myself because I realized I was doing to these Christian people exactly what Christians had done to us for centuries and we so resented. That I was sitting in judgment upon people I didn't know, upon a faith I knew nothing about, and I thought I could judge them and their motives and what they really wanted. I mean, isn't that what so many generations of anti-Semites did to us? They thought they knew Jews, they thought they knew what the Talmud said, and they could sit in judgment and persecute us because of it. So I decided that I needed to do better. And I decided I wanted to understand What's the truth here? Is the truth what all of my Jewish friends tell me, that these Christians are supporting us for the most evil and nefarious of motives? Or is the truth what my heart is sensing, that there's something really pure and genuine and loving about this? So I embarked out of pure, unadulterated, geeky curiosity on a three-year course of research. I'd hear that they were pro-Israel pastors, and I'd go show up in their church when they didn't know a Jewish person was there, just to listen, to hear what they really said. I would buy books from every pro-Israel Christian and read it. I remember ordering every tape on Israel from this Texas pastor named John Hagee, because I was going to sit and listen to every word. And I went beyond that to really studying Christian theology and the history of Christian theology towards Jews. At the end of those three years, I wrote a book my first book. I have a new book out. No, we'll get to that later. I wrote a book called Standing with Israel, um, summarizing it. But at the end of those three years, what I concluded was Christians support Israel for the most noble of motives, for the most admirable of motives, not for some conspiracy theory agenda to get us, not, not for, you know, to speed the end time so Jesus gets us, and not to convert us but for the most noble of motives. And I want to unpack that now and go into that now. By the way, I'm going to try very hard to leave a lot of time for Q&A. 
And I really, really plead with you, beg you, ask me your toughest questions during Q&A. I want to hear the worst you got. Uh, I want to hear the, you know, the, the really the, the what's bothering you, because that's the only way we, we learn. Uh, and so I welcome that. I, I wish those young people would be here. Just ask me those tough questions. You know, maybe I'd learn something. Still happens. So um, here's the story in a nutshell. Here's what I found out after all this research. We have to go back in history. For 2,000 years, since the middle of the second century until the middle of this past 20th century, the, the, almost 2,000 years, the dominant Christian theology towards Jews was something called replacement theology. Okay? Replacement theology taught that when God, this is a Christian theology, when God sent Jesus as, by the way, I should clarify this before we go any further because there's been some, some of the articles against me have, have noted that I'm a notorious anti-Semitic Christian. Um, so I should note, um, not anti-Semitic, but also not Christian. And by the way, I say this not only in synagogues, but in churches, every church I speak in. Um, I'm a Jewish person who happened to work for years for Christians United for Israel. Uh, when people hear that, I think they automatically suspect, ah, Jew, Christian organization, you must be a Jewish believer in Jesus. Um, I, I'm not. Just, it's my, I, I'm a Jewish believer in a faith called Judaism. I, I don't believe the Messiah has yet come. Um, but I, I'm a, a, a Jewish believer in a faith called Judaism who has great love uh, and respect for those Christians who choose to stand with us. And those Christians who choose to defend us, Lord knows not enough do. With that aside, let me get back to the Christian theology of replacement theology. For 2,000 years, this was the dominant theology. They said, hey, God sent a Messiah named Jesus, and the Jewish people failed to recognize this Messiah that God sent. Therefore, under replacement theology, replacement theology holds um, that God got angry. God got mad at the Jews. And he decided to reject the Jews as his chosen people and replace the Jews, replacement theology, replace the Jews with a new chosen people, the people that did recognize the Messiah that God sent, the church. So under replacement theology, the church, hello, Val. Under replacement theology, the church replaced the Jews as God's chosen people, and the church replaced the Jews as Israel in the Bible. Think about the significance of this theology on multiple levels. First of all, just the literal level. If you believe that that word Israel in the Bible means the church and not the Jews, then we've been disinherited from our entire Bible. Nothing in the Bible relates to promises made to the Jewish people or a future for the Jewish people. We are outcast and disinherited from all of these glorious promises. Even more dangerous, though, beyond the literal, I think, is the, the figurative, the example, because if God Almighty, a compassionate, loving God, can cast aside and reject the Jewish people, then there's a temptation for people wanting to do God's will on earth to likewise cast aside and reject the Jewish people. And I think even worst of all, if this act, this, 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 this act that the, the Jews failed to recognize Jesus is such a terrible act, such a horrific crime that God himself cast aside the Jews, well, then maybe this is really the defining act of this people. Maybe this is all you need to know about the Jews. They're the people who didn't recognize the Messiah. And in fact, so many generations of Christians schooled in replacement theology held that exact view. 
we became Christ killers, period. Now, there's nothing about replacement theology that necessitates anti-Semitism. There are a lot of believers in replacement theology in America today who are wonderful people. What I'm saying is it takes away from the Jewish people any divine significance that would really separate them from the Portuguese. And it opens the door to some of these negative ideas of the Jews as cast aside and rejected and hated and Christ killers. And that was a door through which generation after generation of anti-Semitic Christians walked through. Everyone here knows the stories. I don't have to take time to tell them. We know about the Crusades. We know about the Inquisitions. And we know, and this is a debate we, you know, we could spend all night on, we know to some extent the Holocaust was able to take place in a Christian Europe because of Christian anti-Semitism. So that's the story we know, right? That's the story we're taught, that, that Christians have been bad to us for centuries, and that's the explanation for it. It was a Christianity that was in the thrall of replacement theology and its most negative ramifications and implications. But there's another side to the story. And it's this other side to the story that so many of us are unaware of. And it's because of that so many of us can't reconcile this present Christian love for us with this ancient Christian hate for us. And the other side to the story is this. For centuries, there have been Christians who reject replacement theology. For centuries, there have been Christians who, when they get to the word Israel in their Bible, say, hey, let's not spiritualize it. Let's not interpret it to be the spiritual descendants of Abraham, the church. Let's interpret it literally. Israel means a flesh and blood people, the descendants of Isaac, uh, Abraham through Isaac, the Jewish people. Israel means the Jews. In other words, when they get to that word Israel in their Bible, these Christians interpret the Bible the same way we do. Look at the implications of that changed interpretation of one word on the way you view the world. First of all, if Israel means the Jews, we're back in our book. We've reclaimed our inheritance. All of the promises that Israel will one day inherit the land of Israel are promises that the Jews will inherit the land of Israel. When you read your Bible that way, it's a Zionist book. And Genesis 12.3, the one line of scripture that Christian Zionists cite more than any other, Genesis 12.3, he who blesses Israel will be blessed and he who curses Israel will be cursed. If Israel means the Jews, that's nothing less than a commandment to bless the Jewish people. When you read your Bible that way, it's not only a Zionist book, it's a philo-Semitic book, commanding love for the Jews. And look at the example that this sets, beyond the literal level. If God Almighty still loves the Jewish people, still honors covenant with the Jewish people, still wants to return the Jews to their land and bless them, then maybe a Christian wanting to do God's will on earth should likewise seek to bless and love the Jewish people. And finally, there's this piece. If God still loves the Jewish people, if God still honors his covenant with the Jewish people, well, then maybe there's more to the story than calling them Christ killers. Maybe we need to dig a little deeper. And maybe when we dig a little deeper, we see and understand that the roots of Christianity are Jewish. That the patriarchs were Jews, the prophets were Jews, Jesus and his family were Jews. Every word of the Bible, New and Old Testaments, written by Jews. And that, in fact, is what Christians who have rejected replacement theology 
That is how they have viewed the world. And just like the anti-Semitism of some of the negative applications of replacement theology led to so many tragedies for us over the years, well, this different idea, this idea of rejecting replacement theology, of believing that the Jews are still part of God's plan for the world, it has led to some wonderful actions over the years. Dumasani, good to see you. I just want to, um, we have uh, one of our Kufi leaders here tonight, Pastor Dumasani Washington and his wife Val. I'm very proud to have them. I'm very proud to have them. Just a quick aside, those people outside protesting me a month ago, two months ago, they went to Pastor Dumasani's church and disrupted worship at his church because they don't like the fact that Pastor Dumasani stands with Israel. Now, I would have suggested perhaps they think about going to the mosque in Davis uh, where the imam has called for the death of Jews and maybe disrupting worship there. But to be honest with you, I'm not much for disrupting anyone's worship, whether we agree with them or not. So Dumasani, <laughs> it's good to have you with us uh, tonight and have them on the outside. Anyway, just like the bad ideas, the anti-Semitic ideas led to tragedies for us, the good ideas uh, have led to some wonderful things. I'll just give you a few examples. Um, you know, the Puritans in England uh, were Christians who rejected replacement theology. When Oliver Cromwell seized power in England, one of the first things he did was to let the Jews back on the island. They had been expelled centuries earlier by Christians with a different view of Jews. Um, we spoke earlier briefly about the Holocaust. Well, as you all know, while an entire continent of Christians was busy murdering Jews or sitting by and letting it happen, there were righteous Gentiles who risked their lives to save Jews. And not all of them were religious Christians, but I've read their testimony. There have been studies, studies of righteous Gentiles. What motivated people to such heights of altruism? And as I read through these studies, page after page, it was so clear to me that these were Christians motivated by this rejection of replacement theology. They would say things like, I risked my life to save a Jewish person because well, the Jews are God's chosen people. I, I risked my children's lives to save those Jewish children because the Jews are the apple of God's eye. I risked my family to save that Jewish family because the Jews have given to my family the things that matter most to us in this world, our Bible, our Savior, our prophets. And at a certain point, it clicked in my mind. This theology, this rejection of replacement theology is the theology of the righteous Gentile. It is a theology that can drive acts of altruism and courage that I can barely fathom. And here's the last piece of the story. These righteous Gentiles, these Christians who rejected replacement theology, there were too few of them in Europe. They were a minority. They were too few. But some of them, in an earlier century, late 1800s, got in boats and came to America, where they started teaching Bible schools and churches and Bible interpretations. And they became instrumental in the fundamentalist movement in American Christianity, a movement that bases itself on a literal interpretation of the Bible. And they were very receptive in interpreting their Bible literally to interpret 
the word Israel literally, to mean a physical people, the Jewish people. And so these ideas became part of our fundamentalist movement, and, and, and as that movement grew and spread, and as it spawned the charismatics and the evangelicals, this idea became part of it. So in a very real sense, righteous Gentiles have taken over the American church. And most of us had no idea it ever happened. We're still judging them by the standards of what they did back during the Crusades. Friends, you think Judaism is diverse? Christianity is diverse. You ought not to judge modern-day evangelicals by the standards of 10th century Catholics. You ought not judge 20th century Catholics by the standards of 10th century Catholics. There's a lot to know and a lot of differences, and this is a critical difference for those of us concerned about Israel and the Jewish people. Now again, not every American Christian supports Israel. In fact, not every evangelical supports Israel. If you ask me, I think we have a bigger problem from those Christians and those evangelicals who actually want to boycott Israel. But when we have Christians who actually recognize uh, Israel and want to stand with Israel, well, to me, that's something very important, something very rare in history, something we should embrace. I want to close with a story that summarizes everything I just tried to say. And then I want to open it up for some discussion. Um, <laughs> Christians, don't raise your hands. How many people in this room have ever heard of Corey Ten Boom? Okay, all right, not bad, not bad. Typically, many more Christians than Jews have heard of the Ten Booms. Everyone should know about the Ten Booms. The Ten Booms were a family of devout evangelical Christians living in Harlem in the Netherlands when the Nazis invaded. These people were good, righteous people, and they had a reputation in town. You know, Jews would walk the streets of Harlem and a lot of people would spit at them or shout, dirty Jew. But Caspar Ten Boom, the family patriarch, would take off his hat and bow with respect every time he passed a Jew. And he'd invite Christians to his table where he loved sharing time with them and reveling in their shared love for the Bible together. So when the Nazis showed up in Harlem, the Jews started knocking at the Ten Boom door. And the Ten Booms, being people filled with these true Christian values, couldn't turn them away. And very soon, they developed an underground railroad. They built a hiding place in their home in Harlem. In case something happened while Jews were hiding in their home, they'd have a place to go. And then they would ferry them. Church members would ferry them out at night when it was safe to houses out in the countryside where they could hide for the duration of the war. And in this fashion, the Ten Boom family saved hundreds of Jews from the Holocaust. Well, one night that inevitable knock at the door came. The Nazis raided the Ten Boom home. There were six Jews in the Ten Boom home that night when the Nazis came. All six of them went to this hiding place. All six of them survived the war. The Ten Booms weren't so lucky. Uh, they arrested uh, the Ten Boom family that night. Uh, as they were arresting Casper, the family patriarch, uh, they saw him walking with a the cane. They said to him, old man, jail is no place for you. Um, go back home where you belong. And Casper Ten Boom looked them in the eye and said, if you let me go back to my home, I will open my door to the next Jew who knocks. So they took him to jail. Casper Ten Boom died in a Nazi prison 10 days later. His nephew, Kick Ten Boom, died in a Nazi concentration camp. His son, Willem Ten Boom, died 
in a Nazi concentration camp. His daughter, Betsy Ten Boom, died in a Nazi concentration camp. His other daughter, Cory Ten Boom, survived Ravensbrück and lived to tell the family story. And she spent the rest of her life sharing that family story. They do something very important at Yad Vashem in Israel. And to me, this is an important lesson for us all. They passed the law creating Yad Vashem very shortly after the birth of the state of Israel, the same decade that witnessed the Holocaust. That law required that a memorial to the six million lives snuffed out by hate be built in the hills of Jerusalem. But that same legislation, that same legislation required that a garden to the righteous among the Gentiles be built alongside that memorial to the six million dead. What a powerful statement, right? We will not condemn a people because of their faith or because of their religion or because of their nationality and what people of a certain faith or nationality did to us. We will divide the wicked from the righteous on the basis of their actions and their actions alone because there were some who chose not to hate, some who chose to risk their lives for our survival, and we will recognize their righteousness next to the memorial for those who are killed by hatred. It's an example right after the Holocaust we all should keep in mind when we go about judging others. So they built the garden to the righteous next to Yad Vashem. And they invited Cory Ten Boom there to speak when they planted a tree in memory of her family. I want to share with you what Cory said that day because Cory was asked a question that day in Jerusalem that she was asked throughout her entire life. And uh, the question was why? Why? Why did your family risk so much and lose so much to save Jewish people you didn't even know? Here's what Corey said that day. We love the Jews because we can thank them for the two greatest treasures. treasures. First of all, a book written by the Jews. It is the Bible, and we must thank Israel for it. It is the book which is almost bursting with good news and glorious promises. All its writers were Jews, except Luke, but he was converted through a Jew. I want to thank you, the Jews, for this book, for the Bible has shown me the way to the second greatest blessing in my life. It got me acquainted with my greatest friend. He was a Jew. On his divine side, he was the son of God, but on his human side, he was a Jew, and this friend is my savior. That is the theology of our friends. That is a theology that could motivate acts of courage and, and, and selflessness and altruism beyond anything I'm, I'm capable of. Uh, to me, I would submit to you that's a theology that deserves our respect. I want to share another quote from another righteous Gentile who was asked the same question his whole life. Why do you do it? Why do you devote so much time and so much effort to the Jews? And you'll hear again this theology of the righteous Gentile. Here's how this other, second righteous Gentile, answered this question of why. He said the following. The Jewish people gave to us the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The prophets, Elijah, Daniel, Zechariah, not a Baptist in the bunch. 
Every word in your Bible was written by Jewish hands. The first family of Christianity, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, were Jewish. Jesus Christ, a Jewish rabbi from Nazareth, made this statement. Salvation is of the Jews. The point is this. If you take away the Jewish contribution to Christianity, there would be no Christianity. Now, Corey Ten Boom died. Uh, oh, it's been like 15 years. We, we, we lost her a while ago. We just have her memory and her example to guide us. But the second righteous Gentile that I quote is very much alive and very much well and living in San Antonio, Texas. And his name is Pastor John Hagee. Um, if you hear in Pastor Hagee's words an echo of the theology and the ideology of Corey Ten Boom, it's no mistake. They share the same theology. And I would go one step further. He's acting on that same theology in the only way it makes sense in the world today. Thank God the threat to Jews in the world today is not as us as individuals living in the diaspora. Thank God we don't need to be hidden in Christian basements today. But as all of you know, the existential threats to the Jewish people haven't evaporated. They haven't disappeared. They've morphed into an existential threat to the Jewish state of Israel. So someone acting on the theology of a righteous Gentile today, it's only natural they'll want to stand up and support the Jewish people and the Jewish state and make sure that the Jewish state is safe from its enemies. Now, Corey Ten Boom paid the ultimate price for her faith and her beliefs. But Pastor Hagee, you know, he's had death threats because he stands with the Jewish people. He's had the Windows of his car shot out in front of his house as a threat because he stood with Israel. He's had half his church leave when he announced that this will be a church that stands with the state of Israel. And to this day, I see the hate mail, and I see the suits, and I see the toll it takes. And yet, he would never abandon this course because he believes it's the righteous path and the right path. Pastor Dumasani, I know Pastor Dumasani. I know the criticism you get from your own community, standing with Israel. I know the criticism you get from my community, because you stand with Israel. Pastor Dumasani and Val pay a price for supporting Israel, but they do it because they have the theology that demands this of them. And I know there are a lot of Kufi, Kufi members here tonight, and I know you've made sacrifices, small and large, to be here tonight, to come to Kufi in D.C., to take time out of your busy days and money from your tight budgets to stand with Israel and the Jewish people. And I'm grateful that you do that. And I, know you, and I know you do it even if we weren't grateful because you're not doing it for us. You're doing it because you believe it's God's will and the right thing to do. But in a time when we see anti-Semitism resurgent again on the far right and the far left, uh, in a time when hating Jews and hating the Jewish state seems to be coming back into fashion, uh, it's not a time when I will ever take for granted, granted millions of people who choose to stand with this poor and persecuted and hated Jewish people, choose to stand by this persecuted and demonized and delegitimized Jewish state, um, 
And I am grateful to all of you for what you do. And uh, it's been one of the greatest honors of my life to work alongside you. And um, for those of you uh, here tonight who are unfamiliar with this movement, uh, again, I want to open it up now for discussion, Q&A. We still have some good time left. And um, I, on purpose, didn't touch on some of the things I know are on people's minds. Uh, doesn't Kufi do this? Didn't Hagee say that? Please, whatever is on your mind. But I think now we have a context and a foundation upon which we can discuss some of these things in a little uh, a brighter light. So please, I, I welcome your questions. So let's take a few questions and let's do engage. Make sure your question or statement is shorter so the speaker can really respond uh, in return. Okay. Thank you. So the elephant in the room is our imperfect understanding of Armageddon and what the Jews think or yes. the Christians think our role is, which is variously cited as not ending up on the good side. So if you yes. could clarify that, that would be excellent. Well, thank you for raising the, the, the A word, uh, Armageddon. I appreciate it. And there's actually a couple ramifications to the question that I want to get into. First of all, a, a common belief among Jews is that Christians only support Israel to speed Armageddon, to speed the second coming, at which point Jesus kills or converts all of us. And it's interesting psychologically, we all know it, right? I knew this. A lot of Jews know this. It's not true, but, but we knew it. And the question is interesting is why do we know it? I think, we, and why do we believe it? And I think we Jews tend to believe it because it fits perfectly into our psychological space. We're used to Christians persecuting us. We're used to Christians perpetrating inquisitions upon us, killing us, trying to forcibly convert us. We have a hard time believe, to believing these Christians are, who are coming to support Israel are motivated by love. But if I can somehow believe they're only supporting Israel to kill me or convert me, that fits perfectly with my understanding of Christians throughout history. There's no, uh, there's no historical dissonance here. So I think it fits a space in our imagination that has seen that as the only approach towards us from Christians. Here's something interesting. Christians borrowed from Jews the concept of a Messiah, right? That's our idea. Uh, they believe he's coming, is coming back. We believe he hasn't come. Christians actually took from us the belief that when the Messiah comes or comes back, there'll be some bloodshed. Right? It's a, and I hear people talk about you. Those sick Christians think Jesus will come back and there'll be a lot of blood. Okay, but those... Christians got that idea from us. That's a Jewish belief. The one thing Christians did not take from us, however, is a belief that human agency can speed the coming of the Messiah by so much as one second. Now, it's a Jewish belief that maybe if we observe Shabbat and we love each other and we stay kosher, maybe Mashiach will come sooner. That's a Jewish belief. We can change God's timetable through our behavior. Christians don't believe that. It's in the New Testament. Of that day and hour, I know not when. Only my Father in heaven knows. Christians believe God has set his timetable and humans are powerless to change it. Now, I should add, by the way, that if I were speaking to you in the mid-1800s instead of today, I would have to say that that's not entirely true. In the mid-1800s, there was a movement of post-millennial 
uh, Christians who did believe that they could, Jesus would come after a thousand-year millennium and that they, through their righteous actions, could start that thousand-year period. That post-millennialism is almost non-existent today. Almost all the Christians who support Israel don't get into eschatology or they're premillennial. So long story short, they don't believe they can speed up the second coming by so much as one day. They don't believe they can speed up Armageddon by so much as one day. So then why do they get up in the morning and go to a pro-Israel rally? Why do they sell the family car so they can take the family to our Washington, D.C. summit and lobby on behalf of Israel? Why do they do it? It turns out that Christian support for Israel, I would say, is best analogized to Orthodox Jewish support for Israel. It starts with the Bible. It starts with a belief in the Bible and a belief that Israel means the Jewish people and a belief that God has promised a certain land to us and that when we see the Jews returning to this land from the four corners of the earth, it's the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, Hebrew prophecy, and that this is a wonderful thing and if God's behind it, we should be behind it. But let's not oversimplify this or stereotype this. What starts with the Bible does not end with the Bible. Christians who support Israel, not all Christians, Christians who support Israel tend to have a deep understanding of the tragedy of Jewish history. They know what life as a stateless people has done unto us. They know we need our own state. And that sense of history informs their Zionism deeply. And unlike us, their sense of Jewish history is spiked by some communal guilt. Because they know so many of those terrible things done unto us were done unto us by people who claim to worship their Jesus, their faith. They feel they have an enormous debt of gratitude to the Jewish people, a debt that has been ill repaid. And so their sense of Jewish history is spiked by guilt to do better and to make amends for what people have done in the name of their faith. And then finally, they have a deep understanding of the justice of Israel's struggle for survival. Uh, they don't, you know, they, 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 most of them were not support in Israel that is unconcerned with human rights and civil rights and, and, and disregards, uh, you know, innocent civilians when it goes to war. They have a deep understanding of the reality of Israel's search for peace and struggle for survival and the, and the Judeo-Christian values that Israel upholds so wonderfully under very difficult circumstances. That's what informs um, Christian support for Israel. Um, a final thought, you didn't, it maybe was part of your question, but a question I'm asked often is, but wait a minute, don't they think that when Jesus comes back, when the Messiah comes, it will be Jesus coming again? And so don't they, like, isn't that an insult to us that they think we're wrong because we believe the Messiah hasn't come? You know, so shouldn't we be offended by that? Shouldn't we be insulted by that? And I would say that we should be every bit as offended by that as Christians should be by the fact that we don't believe the Messiah has come. <laughs> we, we believe they're wrong. Uh, it's called a disagreement, friends. And we can disagree agreeably. You know, for centuries, all we ever wanted, all we ever wanted was for our Gentile neighbors to stop hating us, to actually get to know us and talk to us and become friends with us and stop judging us be because of these exaggerated theological differences. Now many of them are finally doing that, and all of a sudden we're saying, wait a minute, not so fast, Bubba. I don't like your theology. I think, I think we can do better. I think we should do better. I, I'm going to just put on the hat, because you've said for a, a few times yes. about theological perspectives, where people come from. I would argue that the, some of the young people outside who protested argue that, well, we come from a prophetic Jewish tradition 
that calls for our ethical connection and seeing the holy dignity in all people. And they would say to us, well, Rabbi, you're not standing by that tradition if you're in coalition with somebody who says they love you, but then don't love the other. And so how, what do you say to the challenge that argues, well, Kufi may like Jews now, it's all great, but are they Islamophobic? How do they see the Muslims and, 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 and the standing of Muslims in this country and respond to the fear right now, just as we respond to anti-Semitism, uh, to, to Islamophobia. Well, thanks, Rabbi. You know, as I mentioned before, the Christian world is incredibly diverse. I mean, you all know there are Presbyterians and Methodists, um, but it's, it's far more diverse than that. Most evangelical churches are non-denominational. In other words, the pastor sets up the church and the pastor decides this is what this church will believe. You know, so imagine that. We have Reformed conservatives, conservative, uh, Orthodox, Reconstructionists. They have thousands of churches. Just This is what Pastor X believes. It, it is incredibly diverse. It's an incredibly diverse community, not only theologically, but racially and politically. You know, a, a third of evangelicals voted for John Kerry. A quarter voted for Barack Obama. This is a diverse community. It is a community, by the way, that stands for, I think, the best of Judeo-Christian values. You know, this idea that we're all created equal in the image of God, <laughs> I think our founding fathers did it a disservice. Because, you know, whether they write, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Well, that, that's a paraphrase of we're all created in the image of God. It's not self-evident. Most civilizations throughout most of human history never recognize that idea. If you're in my tribe, you're okay. If you're in the other tribe, I eat you. It, it, this is a revolutionary idea, and it's a Judeo-Christian idea. And some of the people who have upheld this tradition most bravely and most boldly throughout Western civilization have actually been devout Christians. I, I wrote a, my second book was on this, called In Defense of Faith, available on. Um, <laughs> Some of the greatest human rights struggles in the history of the Western world have been led by devout Christians. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have time to get into it now, but the effort, when most Europeans went and saw Indians, Native Americans in, in South America as second-class beings that could be enslaved and killed, devout Christians stood to fight that. And they actually went back to Spain and held these amazing debates where you had secular Spaniards quoting Greek philosophers for the prospect that these Native Americans are inferiors that we can kill and enslave, and you had devout Christians, Catholics, citing the Bible to say, no, they are not. They are created in the image of God. You cannot touch them. They actually won the disputation, but it was never enforced. Uh, you had devout evangelicals leading the fight to ban the slave trade in Britain, William Wilberforce. You had devout evangelicals fighting to end slavery here at home. Those kooky abolitionists, all of them devout Christians. It was a movement of the churches. The civil rights movement, I'm sorry. Don't let them tell you Martin Luther King Jr. was not a devout Christian. Don't let them tell you he was inspired by Gandhi. It's actually the opposite. Gandhi got his ideas of nonviolence from Leo Tolstoy, who was a devout Christian writer and thinker. King had not heard of Gandhi until someone introduced him to Gandhi's nonviolence. He got his example of nonviolent protest from a gentleman named Jesus. So there is a long tradition, what I'm trying to say, in the Christian community of upholding these highest of these Judeo-Christian values. But like any community, there's diversity. We in our Jewish community have differences of opinion about Muslims. 
Some in our community um, would condemn all Muslims because of the acts of one interpretation of Islam. Others in our community would excuse all Muslims, despite the acts of some who hold a certain interpretation of Islam. You know, I think the just right is, well, my belief of what's just right is obvious now, but there's a diversity of opinion, and um, in the Christian community, you see the same thing. You see a diversity of opinion and a struggle with, with where does this evil come from? And the same questions. I believe that, that the majority of Muslims are peace-loving and, and good people, but why isn't there more outrage? Why isn't there more protest? You hear the same discussion, same debates, and ultimately, I think it's a conversation that um, you know, we'd all benefit from knowing a lot more about. Other questions? Hi, uh, I'm Gina Waldman and represent Jimena, the Jews indigenous to the Middle East and North Africa. And I would like to, um, for you to maybe shed a little bit more light on a wonderful project that Pastor Dumisani Washington and his wife Valerie has been Championing and and championing, sorry, and uh, that is going to be launched uh, by Christians United for Israel, which has been a, a really interesting project, and I, I'm hoping the audience will learn more uh, because it is the very thing that counters boycott yes. of Israel. So, uh, you know. It's it's just funny to me that, again, you can disagree with our politics, that's fine. Uh, but the, the, the fact that they're calling Kufi an anti-Semitic group is just a little rich. Um, so one of the things this anti-Semitic group Kufi has done is, um, this is Pastor Dumasani here has really led the way. Um, it's recognized that we talk an awful lot about the Palestinian refugees. We should. They're innocent people who suffered um, uh, when Israel was created. But we never really talk about the Jewish refugees from Arab countries who are also victims uh, and, 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 and who have also suffered as a result of a, a backlash after Israel dared to survive its war of independence. Mo most of us here are familiar with the story of the Jewish refugees, but most Americans are not. Most students on college campuses are not. And part of the reason why, I think, is because while the Palestinians have tragically nurtured a victim culture, always looking back with hate and resentment about what was taken from them, the Jewish refugees never did that. And I know Gina is from Tripoli. My wife's father is from Tripoli, and, and I use them, bless you, I use them as an example. So my wife's father is from Tripoli, Libya, where her father's family was very wealthy. They did very well in Tripoli. Hey, they were there for over a millennia. You know, they, they, had, they were there before the birth of Islam. They did very well in Tripoli, and they were very well off. When um, they had to flee for their lives, uh, they couldn't take a dime with them. And this very well-off family ended up living in a one-room apartment in Netanya. My father-in-law was raised, he and his ten siblings were raised in a one-room apartment in Netanya. And I asked Tila, my wife, did your father ever talk about one day he's going to go back and get his land in Tripoli back? One day he's going to go back and get his riches back. One day he's going to get revenge on the Arabs who, who expelled him. She said, of course not. Of course not. My father raised us with a love for things Arabic. He raised us to speak Arabic. He raised us to love the foods and smells of Tripoli. 
And in fact, his greatest desire is to one day go back and see Tripoli again before he dies. But he probably won't be able to because it's not a very safe place for Jews. My wife's mother is the child of a Holocaust survivor, an Auschwitz survivor, and a woman who was hidden by Christians. Were you ever raised to hate Germans? No, on the contrary, her Holocaust survivor grandfather actually used to go back to Germany three times a year. His parents took him to Baden-Baden when he was a little kid, and he must have loved the memory of being with his, his family all died in one day in Auschwitz. He was the only one to survive. He must have loved the memory of Baden-Baden. He'd go back three times a year to go back to Baden-Baden, speak his mother tongue, be in the German places he found so beautiful. So, you know, it, might, it sounds heartless sometimes, right? Oh, stop wallowing in the past. Look forward and build. But that's exactly what every other refugee population has done, including the Jewish refugees. And I think telling their story, A, shows the suffering has been on both sides, not just one side. But two, shows there's another way to deal with suffering and deal with loss. And that is to move on with your life, to build a future, and to try to love, uh, even love people from a group that has done you an injustice. So um, this project, the Mizrahi Project, M-I-Z-R-A-H-I, Mizrahi Project, if you go to it online, MizrahiProject.org, MizrahiProject.org, you'll see wonderful, beautiful videos, about five, six minutes each, telling the stories of refugees from Arab lands, or my wife did one, uh, telling the stories of the children of these refugees. And it's a wonderful way to get these stories out there and for us to understand this aspect of the conflict and of our history that we don't know well enough. Um, so thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. I'm going to come at this from a little more of a political point of view. Um, I feel like over the past really few decades, Israel has tended to be a very bipartisan issue. And even you see in Congress, it still is very bipartisan when we have votes. But I feel like a lot of the protesters we're seeing, the anti-Israel protesters, the younger protesters, tend to come from this very left-wing movement, this new left-wing movement. And I know personally I'm a very big APAC attendee. And two years ago at APAC, when all the presidential candidates spoke, or almost all of them, including Trump, Hillary, Ted Cruz, and John Kasich, Bernie Sanders sat out, and he chose not to speak at APAC. And from a pro-Israel point of view, where it seems that that extreme left doesn't like Israel, to see the representative, the political representative of that branch of political views speak out, um, sit out from a pro-Israel conference that all by the Democratic and Republican leaders of Congress spoke at. It really sent a bad message, and I feel like, at least personally, I'm noticing that making Israel the partisan issue that it can't afford to become, because if Israel's support becomes a partisan issue, then we all lose, and the state of Israel loses. So how do we counter that partisanship? How do we counter, I mean, the fact that everything in our society is now becoming partisan, but the fact that now even support from Israel is becoming partisan, Personally, I would put that blame on the left, but that's just my political views. But how do we counter that trend and make sure it does not become a partisan issue and we don't allow it to become partisan? Yeah. You, you make a very good point that what frightens me most about the future of American support for Israel is the danger that what's always been a bipartisan issue is before our eyes becoming a partisan issue. The Republican Party is solidly pro-Israel in their actions, but also the polling highly, highly pro-Israel, 75%. The Democratic Party, for the first time in history, first time in history, recent poll, 
equal division between those who are more sympathetic to Israel and those who are more sympathetic to the Palestinians. Around 33% each, the rest were undecided. 75% or more of Republicans pro-Israel, about 33% uh, more sympathetic to Israel. About 33% of the Democrats equal to those who are more sympathetic to the Palestinians. First time ever. And that's just a snapshot of a trend. A lot of people see this and they know who to blame. They blame me, right? They blame conservatives who support Israel. And I guess the logic is because you conservatives started supporting Israel, progressives looked and said, oh, this isn't for us, we're leaving. Um, I would make a different argument. And that is, I think the Jewish progressive left has failed. We in the conservative world have policed our own. We're pro-Israel, but when one of, our, one of our ranks ceases to be pro-Israel, well, it's our job to go after them. And it's exactly what we've done. In Christians United for Israel, we have gone after any Republican who, who comes out in, in an anti-Israel way. Rand Paul came out and floated a trial balloon of cutting aid to Israel. We had his inbox filled with 40,000 emails within a day. He quickly dropped that idea. I mean, we police our own. I, and, and I know some people here might be members, and, and, but I had high hopes for J Street. When J Street was created, I, a lot of people in our community said, oh, no, this is bad. I said, what are you talking about? This is great. But I thought that J Street would be devoted to the mission of making the progressive case for Israel in progressive language to progressives, because that's what we need to do, and that's what we should be doing. I feel that too often they become another voice criticizing Israel, and I feel that market's very well served already. So I would like to see a group, and I think this group needs to be created, that is proud and unapologetic of saying, yeah, Israel's not perfect. I disagree with some of Israel's policies. But when it comes to the progressive issues nearest and dearest to my heart, you better believe Israel is a shining example in a sea of darkness. You want to talk about... Talk about women's rights? You want to talk about gay rights? I, 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 I'm sorry. You want to this sounds like hyperbole, so forgive me. The freest Arabs in the Middle East are the Arab citizens of the state of Israel. There are problems. I'm not saying there aren't problems. The freest Arabs in the Middle East are the Arab citizens of the state of Israel. They're free to vote for or criticize their government without fearing for their freedom or their lives. Naming any Arabs in any other country who can do that. And I believe the freest Muslims in the Middle East are the Muslim citizens of the state of Israel. They're free to worship Allah as they see fit or not worship Allah without fearing for their, their freedom or their lives. I'm proud of that. I will apologize to no one for Israel's record. I love this country. I love America, even though I don't agree with things we've done. I think we've done some bad things. But boy, compared to the rest of humanity, this is a beacon. This is a shining city. I feel the same way for, about Israel. So yeah, we, you know, we can criticize Israel, uh, but let's not wallow in it. And, I, and I'd love to see more progressives boldly defending Israel's record on progressive issues. Uh, we hear that the younger generation of evangelicals has been approached by pro-Palestinians and possibly in general youth seems to have a less, less of a devotion to the idea of Israel than the older generations regardless. 
do you feel that the next generation of evangelical leaders will still be pro-Israel? It's a great question, really good question. Because it's, it's funny, you know, I spent a lot of my career you know, doing this, saying, hey, Christians love us, it's not so bad, guys. And I felt like just when a lot of folks in our community were starting to accept that idea, I had to come with a new speech, which was, they might not love us for long. Um, this is fascinating, right? So the older generation of Christians are, tend to be motivated by this theology. They tend to be biblical literalists. When it says, he who blesses Israel will be blessed, and they believe Israel means the Jews, they, they feel a commandment to support Israel and the Jews. And there's a feeling there that God's not going to give me a dilemma. If God wants me to bless Israel and the Jews, then, then I should, and God's not going to give me a dilemma of an immoral Israel. So there's, a, there's a, an inclination to support Israel that, let's say, a, 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 a rebuttable supposition. They're inclined to support Israel until they, they really see ma massive proof to the contrary. And like me, most of them go to Israel and just don't see it. The younger generation is less biblically literal. Right? And a lot of people in this room might be more comfortable with them because they're less biblically literal. They're less hung up on some of the legalisms of the Bible and much more in the thrall of the example of Jesus. They call themselves Jesus followers even more than they call themselves Christians. And they see Jesus more than anything as a man of compassion. He'd be out with the poor and the oppressed, and he'd be with them with love. And they want to emulate that. And so they go out in the world and try to go where they're suffering and be with those people. And it's a beautiful, beautiful impulse. And it's one I think a lot of us would identify with. Ironically, though, because they're less biblically literal, because they're more motivated by the example of a humanitarian Jesus, they're in play. Because now Israel haters can come to them and say, I'm glad you want to stand with the oppressed and the downtrodden. Got news for you. In Israel, the oppressed and the downtrodden are the Palestinians. The oppressors are the Israelis. And not knowing better, and most Americans don't know better, they believe it. Also, there's some naivete. A lot of young evangelicals are very earnest. They're not used to people looking them in the eyes and lying through their teeth. So they're brought on trips, and I've talked to them after they, they're brought on trips to a place called Palestine where they are shown every, uh, the, the evil of, of Israel and the occupiers, and they talk to me about what they're taught on their trips. And, and you know, I wish I could tell you it was the, you know, uh, a labor critique of Israeli policy. It's, it's, a, it's an ugly, anti-Semitic, deceitful uh, critique of Israel. But they come back believing it. And so... Because they're cut loose from the literal bindings that a lot of us might not be comfortable with in the literal Bible, they're in play. And because they're in play, anti-Israel forces are investing a lot of money and making a lot of progress and persuading that next generation of evangelicals that the Christian thing to do is to stand against Israel. The good news is this. We started witnessing this 2010, 2011. Started seeing the editors of the top young evangelical magazines coming back anti-Israel. Some of the hottest young evangelical pastors, anti-Israel. Some of the top Christian writers, bestsellers, coming back from trips, writing anti-Israel blogs. And we realized it was coming from an investment in bringing them on trips and lying to them. So in Christians United for Israel, we decided to launch a program to take the same constituency, young millennial evangelical leaders and influencers, take them to Israel and tell them the truth. And we've been doing this now. We just brought our 500th. Uh, young evangelical leader to Israel, and we see a lot of progress. 
for a while there, 2012, 2013, it was almost like demonstrating your young millennial bona fides. I'm not sure about Israel. My father loved Israel, I'm not so sure. It was like showing your street cred. We don't see that anymore. We really don't see that anymore. This whole idea that if I want to be a hip young Christian, I have to be anti-Israel is, is, is faded. So I think we're fighting back works. And I believe this is true. What's true for young evangelicals is true for young Jews and true for our campuses. Telling the truth stubbornly actually can work. It gives you some hope. Uh, we're seeing it with young evangelicals. So while that trend terrified me five years ago, I'm less terrified today, but we have to keep working. We have a lot of work left to do. I'd like to hear what you'd have to say about the growing Messianic movement. And uh, I see it, it all over the world and, and a lot of interest in um, non-Jews. Come, let us go with you. And, you know, the Jewish holy days, the love for the yeah. Jewish roots of our faith. And I know you must have studied a lot about that. Well, I haven't actually, but I've witnessed some of it. Um, so, you know, there's a movement among Christians um, sort of to become Messianic. Um, and the meaning of the term in this context is they're so interested in the Jewish roots of their faith. They recognize, first of all, and this is the part, they recognize that the roots of their faith are Jewish. They recognize that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. And so that leads to, I think, a natural next step, which is I want to understand the world in which Jesus lived and taught and worked. I want to understand the Jewish roots of my faith. And it's leading more and more Christians. Again, each church is, is, is very independent. Many Christian churches um, to start to say, hey, let's reconnect with the Passover Seder. That was the Last Supper. Let's reconnect with, with some of the other holidays, the pilgrimage holidays. Pastor Dumasani's church, they worship on Saturday. That's when Jews worship. That's when Jesus would have worshipped. So it's a fascinating movement. Um, it, I, I've heard from some Jews that they get uncomfortable when they see Christians maybe wrapping themselves in the talis, a talit, um, or, you know, uncomfortable. Um, I, I don't know. Um, it's, it's appropriating Judaism. I, 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 I don't see it as that. I see it as a, as, a, as a sincere effort to rediscover the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. And I see any movement towards rediscovering the Jewish roots of the Christian faith as a good thing for Jewish-Christian relations to the Jewish people because our problem has been for too long they have not recognized the Jewish roots of their faith. So I'll put up with uh, uh, Taliot and, and, and whatever uh, my Christian friends want to do to rediscover their own faith roots. We have time just for a few more questions. One here and one there. So the evangelical pastors have been overwhelmingly pro-Israel and met with a lot of skepticism. But other mainstream Christian denominations have become increasingly anti-Israel without the same degree of skepticism or questioning from the Jewish community. My question is, why have, again, no one is perfect, no country, no people, no ideology, but why have the mainstream Christian churches, when a half a million Syrians are killed or 200,000 Jordanians, not put the proportionality of what's going on with Israel versus its Arab population versus its immediate neighbors with what's going on with its Arab or Christian populations. Where is the outrage? Yeah. So we're seeing something in uh, uh, some of the mainline churches um, that I would best say, and we see it sometimes in, in corners of the Jewish world, 
where I think there's been an intermixing of progressive American politics and faith. And sometimes that can be a good thing. You know, when Martin Luther King mixed his faith with politics, it was a very good thing. But I think sometimes it leads to distortions. So I think any reading of the Bible, you know, any clear-headed view would say, okay, I might have some concerns about Israel, but boy, that's on the back burner. Right now, my co-religionists are being massacred and slaughtered in Syria and persecuted in Egypt and driven from their homes in Iraq, and that's going to be a priority. Or there's the greater suffering elsewhere in the world I'm going to make a priority. But I've seen sort of the, this idea in popular in, in far-left progressive circles that Israel is the great demon um, percolating to churches. And so you see this odd agenda where a number of mainline churches uh, voted to divest recently, you know, uh, uh, not from Iran, they didn't do that, uh, to divest from the Jewish state of Israel. Um, and I think it comes from this idea, again, most people are not thinking about the world, right? They, they, they're, they're getting their news from these narrow silos, and they're, they're existing in a silo that's constantly talking about Israel. And so people get the sense that if everyone's talking about Israel, they must be the worst offender. They must be the worst abuser. And so I think what's started by evil people is often carried on by naive people. And it's a dangerous combination. I'd also add that a lot of these mainline churches never rejected replacement theology. They rejected the negative anti-Semitic applications of it. Because after the Holocaust, everyone re-examined. After the Holocaust, everyone re-examined. The Vatican re-examined, you know, when they, they got rid of, you know, the parts of the catechism that taught we were Christ killers. Um, and the mainline Protestants all got together and they came up with resolutions condemning replacement theology's worst, anti most anti-Semitic applications or interpretations. But they never rejected that idea of replacement. They never rejected the idea that we were, in fact, replaced by the church. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean anything anti-Semitic. A lot of wonderful Christians have that belief. But it opens the door. Once our protection's removed, once we no longer have any divine connection or role in God's plan, once that protection's removed, then there's this, just history has shown it. Somehow there's a susceptibility in human nature to go after the small and problematic people. And we see Christians who have not rejected replacement theology, um, unfortunately, uh, still do that. Can, can you comment on the very large and growing percentage of evangelicals worldwide who are Spanish-speaking and how they play into the overall equation? Yeah, it's a, fa it's a fascinating thing. You know, so we all know that Latin America is just a Catholic block, right? From the tip of Argentina up to, up to the border of Texas. Catholic block. And traditionally it was. But there's evangelical Christianity is, is on fire in many parts of the world. One of them is China, by the way, which is fascinating. There are underground churches in China. And people by the millions attend them. A lot of up-and-coming young leaders are, are Christians in China. It could lead to very different politics down the road. Um, we see it in Africa, explosion of evangelical Christianity. I once flew to Africa to attend uh, a small, small Christian gathering in Africa. Um, I, I sat, and I went with Pastor Hagee because he was preaching. Uh, I sat with him as he preached to over two million Nigerians together in one place at one time. It was a crowd of two million people. Um, just to, and just to walk among that humanity that had come a long way, often by foot, to 
to hear the word of God. It's a fascinating thing. Um, and in Latin America, we're seeing evangelical Christianity is really on fire. People are being drawn to it, and they're leaving the Catholic Church to go to it. It's been a threat to the Catholic Church, so much so that many Catholic churches are trying to develop a more charismatic approach and attitude to win people back. And we see it in America. A lot of Hispanics in America, and I don't know the exact percentages, but it's a growing percentage, are not Catholic. They're evangelical. And when they become evangelical, they often become pro-Israel. I mean, when they do polling, uh, Hispanic Catholics in America, unfortunately, have higher levels of anti-Semitism. Um, uh, the Protestant uh, uh, Hispanic Catholics have the highest, higher level of anti-Semitism. Hispanic Protestants do not. Um, many of them are biblical literalists. Many of them love Israel. I can't tell you how many Spanish churches I've been in, and every time it's just a lot of fun. They just, enthusiasm, they, they don't, I, I get translated. I, I speak Hebrew, I don't speak Spanish. I mean, I, and I lived in San Antonio. What a, what a waste, but... But I, I, get, I get translated, and just the love and the dancing and the singing, it's a wonderful thing. So, and here's an interesting thing, final thing. Hispanic Protestants, not all Hispanics, Hispanic Protestants are one of the core swing political constituencies in America. This is a constituency that on certain issues like immigration tends to, to be towards the left, but on other issues, the family values tends to be towards the right. They're really in play. And so it's a very important political constituency. And it's a constituency that we've been going after. We, two years after the creation of Kufi, we created an Hispanic outreach. We have a lot of Hispanic members of Kufi. And so you know, when we talk about our diversity, um, you know, our Spanish outreach has brought not only uh, ethnic diversity uh, and theological diversity, it's brought a lot of political diversity uh, to the organization, and we're better for it. Hi, thank you for your talk. Uh, I'm Steve. So, in, and I'm a Christian. In, in Christian churches, two words, um, covenant theology and dispensationalism, are, are what we're talking about here today. It has to do, and an easier way to say it is, um, the church is Israel and Israel is the church. That's, that's covenant theology. And dispensationalism is there's Israel and there's the church. And God has a plan for both. Um, when you say those words in church and try to explain this concept, people's eyes roll back in their heads. So my, my question is, and my point is, that most Christians don't know what they believe. They don't have a sense of theology. And as people don't study the Bible, they get further and further away from an understanding of this. And I think that's what's going on largely in the younger generation. Just your opinion on, on that. And, and also I'll say one, of the, one more thing when our Jewish brothers and sisters see a Christian who's in Bible study, encourage them. It's better for you. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. That, that was a very good summary of a very complex issue, actually. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, 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 I think a lot of times in churches, you know, just like synagogues, a lot of the high theology is not something everyone in the pews studies or, or knows but they know the, the application of it. So in, in a church that, 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 that tends to reject replacement theology, reject covenant theology, believe that Israel is separate from the church, Israel's the Jewish people, that's, that's married often with an Israeli flag right on the bima, or you know, a, a night to honor Israel held every year in the church. And so it's the application people in the church know. Um, churches that are replacement theology, 
they often just simply don't talk about Israel very much or don't talk about Jewish people very much. It's not that, it's not that there's anti-Semitism, there's just an absence of any Semitism. And, um, and so they, you know, we are like the Portuguese to them, except we, if you watch the media and read the newspapers, we seem to be doing a lot of bad things. So they, they're open, they're in play, and the media and others tend to take them in a, an anti-Israel direction. And I think you're right, final, final point, with the young people, I think it's a combination in some cases of simply not knowing their Bibles, but in other cases, a lot, and so, so that's some of it, but in some of it, it's, I'm impressed by the compassion and, and the, the, the biblical commitment of some young people, but I think that by focusing only on the example and not on the text, you lose something. It's actually a very Jewish idea, right? I mean, why do we have all these laws? Why do we have all the mitzvot? Why? It's easy, one mitzvah, I got one mitzvah for you. Be a good person. <laughs> Not so easy to be a good person, right? We try to be good people and we fail every single day. So that's why we have you know, 613 mitzvot, to help us be a little better at being good people. I think I know a lot of young Christians, I admire them, I love their spirit. They're trying to be good people, but I think they could be, do a better job of it if they paid a little more attention to the text. Good. We, we, we're going to try to end at 8.30, five minutes, a couple more questions, and then you, and then you want to stay af afterwards, yeah? Hi. Um, I feel nervous to ask you a question because um, it feels like the room is really with you. And, it's okay. It's um, okay. And, I, I, and I'm not. <laughs> that's fine. So and, I have and, a question that uh, it's a, I heard that Kufi did that question. Um, so I want to ask you about Yes, Israel, but what kind of Israel? Sure. Um, and if you could be really specific, I'd appreciate it. Sure. What kind of um, activists, what kind of causes, what kinds of organizations you're actually supporting yes. in Israel? Um, because I'm a progressive, and most of the Jewish community are progressives, and this congregation is full of progressives. Um, and I understand that Kufi was the, was the first and biggest funder of Im Tiltsu, which is an ultra-nationalist, mm -hmm. Um, extremely right-wing, racist, them. and also um, an organization that incites violence in Israel. Yes. And I understand that your organization um, was supporting it greatly. I, I don't think you're doing it anymore, but I know you were. And um, at the time that a campaign was waged against the uh, former deputy speaker of the Knesset, Nomi Chazan, which portrayed her it. with horns coming out of her head. I remember it well. So sure. if you could... Talk about that and what you do support. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for your question. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, first of all, um, Kufi supports nothing in Israel. Um, we are like, for lack of a better term, a Christian APAC. Our focus is here. Our goal is building a, a pro-Israel Christian organization, and we focus here. So we actually try to raise funds. We don't give funds away. There's another related entity called John Hagee Ministries. So John Hagee is a busy fella. He started three big things in his life. A church called Cornerstone Church in San Antonio. It's a small shul, uh, seats 5,000, has 20,000 members. He started Christians United for Israel, that, an organization for which I worked and I'm still on their board. Um, and then he started a, an entity called John Hagee Ministries, which takes what he does in his church and his TV programs and broadcasts them around the world and on all the Christian television stations. He raises money 